0: John 18, 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. When Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The word of the Lord.
1: Have you ever had an opportunity for something amazing, but at the time you didn't realize what it was and so you missed it? But then later, you find out what it was you really missed, and you're so disappointed. Has anything like that ever happened to you? It's kind of like when famous musicians go down and play in the subways and nobody recognizes them. You too did that a few years ago with Jimmy Fallon. They disguised themselves, and then they went down into the New York City subway, and they started playing. And people are just walking by. Nobody realizes who these guys are. Can you imagine if, if that had been you? You see these guys playing and you think, yeah, whatever, and you're just getting your train. But then later somebody says, hey, did you hear You 2 was playing down in the subway? And you realize that what you thought was just a bunch of street musicians was really one of the greatest bands of all time, and you missed it because you didn't realize that the greatness that was actually standing in front of you, you didn't recognize it when it was there. That could be so disappointing to miss out on something wonderful because you didn't realize what it was at the time. And depending on the greatness of what you missed out on, um, it might not just be disappointing, it could be devastating. Because what if um, the thing you miss out on isn't something cool like a rock band? What if it was something that actually was the difference between life and death, like the cure for a fatal disease? And, you know, as long as we're doing this thought experiment... What if, if the thing you missed out on, you missed out on it, not just because you failed to recognize it, but because you actively, willfully rejected it because it didn't look like what you wanted it to look like. This passage that we just read is saying that we all do that with God. And I know that's a shocking statement, but this is a shocking passage when you realize what this passage is really saying to us. Because this passage is telling us that we all do that with God. Now, we're beginning a new sermon series this morning. In the weeks leading up to Easter, uh, we're looking at the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus, and we're asking the question, why did Jesus die? And why does it matter? What difference does it make in our lives? This passage is showing us a lot of things, but one of the main things this passage is showing us is that we all reject God. How do we reject God? Why do we reject God? And what does God do about it? Those are great questions. So let's look at each one of those questions in detail this morning. How do we reject God? Why do we reject God? And what does God do about it? Okay, first, um, how do we reject God? Jesus, um, in this passage, he's with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, has decided that he's going to betray Jesus to the authorities. So he shows up with a whole troop of Roman soldiers and also uh, officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, they don't realize it, but they're not just seeking to kill any ordinary human being. They're actually seeking to kill God. And and there's something especially remarkable about this, because it's not just one group of people, it's everybody. John, the gospel writer, in this passage, he's very intentional about showing us that the whole range of humanity is represented here. So it's not just religious people, you've got um, the Roman soldiers who would not have been particularly religious themselves. You've also got racial diversity here, because it's not just Jews, it's also Gentiles, and you've also got class diversity here because the religious leaders would have been cultural elites, but the Roman soldiers were more working class people. So the point is that everyone rejects God. It's a lot like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says, while we were enemies of God, all of us, while we were enemies, Jesus reconciled us to God. Or a little earlier in Romans chapter 3, Paul He quotes the Old Testament, um, because the whole Bible is making this point, the place where it says that no one seeks God. No one seeks God. We all reject God. Now, some of you might think, well, I don't do that. But the whole Bible, from the Old Testament to the Gospels to the letters of Paul, through the whole Bible is all making the same point, that we all reject God. None of us really seeks God. We all reject God. We do it in different ways, but we all reject God. Now, again, you might say, I I don't do that. I don't see how I do that. But let's walk through this. You know, even if you're not a religious person, you might think, look, I don't even know if I believe in God. So how can I reject something that I don't even know if it exists? Well, here's how. Let me show you. If you look in this passage, this scene takes place at night. So these soldiers, they come with lanterns and torches. Now, the Gospel of John tells us over and over again that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. So here come these soldiers with their lanterns and their torches, and they don't realize the greatness of the light that's standing right in front of them. One of the great ironies of this passage is that it's showing us that you can't reject God as the light of the world without trying to create your own light. Because human beings need light. And when I say light, I mean we need moral light. We need intellectual light. We're always looking for that. So for instance, 500 years ago, there was this movement that started in Europe and spread here eventually to America. People began to say, look, belief in God is primitive and oppressive. So instead of looking to God for light, we should look to ourselves for light. That movement was called the Enlightenment. So that instead of um, looking to God for light, secular society says, no, no, now we should look to things like science and technology and rationality for light. It's just like the soldiers in this passage. If you reject the light of God, you're going to end up having to create your own light. Now, you know, so as I was studying this week, um, and especially this part of the passage I kept thinking over and over again about that very famous parable not from Jesus but from the great German philosopher Nietzsche Uh, the parable is called the madman and here's the scene it's it's early in the morning in a marketplace the sun is bright and shining all the light is out everything looks normal but then a madman uh, takes a lighted lantern into the morning of the marketplace and he starts shouting I seek God And the people in the marketplace, they don't believe in God. And so they start laughing at the madman and mocking him. But he continues on. He says this, don't you know we've killed God? And what happens when we do that? What did we do when we loosened the earth from the sun? Isn't it colder now? Isn't it darker now? Aren't we all going to have to light lanterns in the morning? Now, Nietzsche was an atheist And he hated Christianity. But his point here is this. He's saying, look, if we get rid of God, then we get rid of any foundation for morality. That's what he means when he says, we loosen to the earth from the sun. He's saying that if you get rid of God, if you get rid of the moral light that comes from God, you end up having to create your own light. That's the point he was trying to make. So one of his constant points throughout his whole career, he was constantly saying this was that modern secularism, modern Western secularism, rejects belief in God. But, but just like the people standing in the marketplace in the bright morning light, we hold on, to, secularism holds on to these moral values, things like human rights, or the dignity of every individual, or the obligation to care for the poor and the weak and the oppressed. He says that doing that is like living in borrowed light from Christianity because that's where those values come from. That's what Nietzsche says. In other words, he he was always asking this question throughout his career. He was always saying, look, how long are we going to hold on to these moral values once we've cut ourselves off from the foundation of those values? How long is the light going to last once we've cut ourselves off from the sun? Now, here's the point. If you don't believe in God... Then and yet you still hold on to these moral values, things like human rights and caring for the poor, then you really are rejecting God because you're refusing to acknowledge the source of the light that you're walking in. Both the Bible and Nietzsche say the same thing. And, you know, Nietzsche and the Bible don't agree on very many things. So if you find something they do agree on, I would pay attention to that. Now, that's one way that secular people reject Um, god but remember what we saw here the gospel of john is an equal opportunity offender it's not just secular people religious people reject god too how do religious people reject god well look at the religious leaders in this passage what are they here to do they're here to arrest jesus bind him up and carry him away in other words they want to get control over god any religion that is not rooted in the gospel at its heart is essentially a desire to get control over God. That is the basic religious impulse. The basic religious impulse is a desire for control because here's how religion works. Religion says, if you want God to love you and bless you, then you have to be a good person. You have to obey these rules or you have to practice these spiritual disciplines or you have to devote yourself to these ethical causes. That's what you have to do. So no matter what it is, the, the religion basically is a desire for control. So at, at the end of the day, the bottom line is if you want to connect to God, what you have to do is you have to be a good person. So it's very natural for us to, to take up that impulse ourselves. We want to have control over God. We want to have control over our lives. So what we do is we say, okay, if I want God to love me and bless me and give me what, my, what I want, then I have to be a good person. So what we'll do is we'll go out and we'll do all of those things. And then when God doesn't give us what we really want, what happens? We get angry. But that just shows that it wasn't really God we were seeking in the first place. It was all the stuff. It was the boyfriend or the girlfriend, or it was the money and the success, or, or whatever it might have been. But at the end of the day, it wasn't really God we were seeking. It was the stuff that we were asking for. Now, this, by the way, is one of the reasons that many people stop believing in God. And I want to be really sensitive about this, because this can be so incredibly painful. But a lot of times, people, they'll they'll be asking God for stuff, they'll be praying to God, and then when God doesn't give it to them, they'll stop believing in God. Because the religious paradigm says that if you're a good person, then God has to love you. God has to bless you and give you what you ask for. And by the way, this same paradigm also means that not always will people stop believing in God. A lot of times, people, they'll stay believing in God, but they'll reject Christianity because they'll, they'll look at the hypocrisy of the church very rightfully. They'll look at people who profess to be Christians, but they're hateful, nasty, wicked, evil, cruel, bigoted people. And they criticize that. And it's right, we should criticize that. But what happens is people will say, well, look, it's not necessary to believe in Christianity. All that's really necessary is that we just be a good person because any good person can find God. Don't you realize the irony of that? it's the same paradigm. It's the same basic religious impulse that wants to get control over God by saying, if I'm a good person, then God has to love me, has to bless me, has to give me the things that I'm looking for. It's the same impulse. The basic religious impulse is a desire to get control over God because we don't trust God. And if we don't trust God, we're going to try and get control over him. Friends, The first point is simple. We all reject God. We do it in different ways, but we all reject God. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen how we reject God, but next we need to see why we reject God. And we've already started to get into this. One of the reasons is because we have this desire for control. But it's deeper than that. Because it would be one thing if the God we're trying to control was the God who really exists, but we don't even do that. Our desire for control is so great that what we do is we'll actually construct a God in our minds that doesn't even exist. In other words, we won't let God be God. We don't want to let God be God. It's kind of like when two people meet, and then two days later they say, I'm in love. No, you're not. (laughs) You can't be in love. Because in order to really love someone, you have to know that person. And you can't really know somebody you just met two days ago. Not really. You're not in love with that person. You're in love with an image that you've created. And we do the same thing with God. And that really comes out in this passage. Um, Here comes the mob. Swords are out. And so Jesus walks out to confront them. And he says, whom are you seeking? Now, that's a question that Jesus asks many times in the Gospel of John. When Jesus says, whom are you seeking? That's his way of saying, who do you think I really am? Who do you think God really is? Yes, you say you're looking for God, but what is it you're really looking for? What are you really seeking? Who do you think God really is? That's a huge question. So Jesus asks the mob, whom are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, they think Jesus is just an ordinary human being. And not even just an ordinary human being, but a human being in the lowest category because they make a point of mentioning that Jesus is from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a tiny little backwater hick town. It was considered Nowheresville, in that community and in that culture and anybody from nazareth would have been a nobody so in the minds of of this mob jesus is not just an ordinary human being he's in the lowest category he's a lowly peasant he's a homeless vagrant he's a loser and it's very interesting what jesus does notice he says i am he In other words, he doesn't deny being what they think he is, a lowly Jewish carpenter. But what he does do is he radically reshapes their perception of him. Because if you've been with us for the last several weeks, then you know what Jesus is really saying here. When Jesus says, I am he, in the the original language, it's it's just two words, I am. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking the divine name of God from Exodus 3, and he's applying it to himself, and he's saying, I am God. Yes, I am a lowly Jewish carpenter, but I'm also the God who created the universe. Jesus is giving just a glimmer of who he really is. He's just letting out a shaft of his glory to these Roman soldiers. And when that little shaft comes out, it's enough to knock them to the ground. It says they all drew back and fell to the ground. Now, these are Roman soldiers, and Rome was known in those days for its cold-hearted brutality these soldiers were the most steel-hearted, battle-hardened, brutal people who were living at that time. And yet, two little words from the mouth of Jesus is enough to knock them to the ground. And the reason is because they won't let God be God. And so Jesus reshapes their perception of him. And by the way, it's not just the soldiers who won't let God be God, it's also the disciples. Because look at Peter in this passage. While all of this is going on, Peter takes a sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. The guy's name was Malchus. I can imagine Malchus, you know, saying to himself later that day, boy, I picked the wrong knight to join a mob. But Peter, Peter wants to take them on. Peter wants to fight for Jesus. But Jesus says, Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't realize who I really am either. Because you won't let me go to the cross, but if you refuse to let me go to the cross, then you're refusing to let me do the very thing I came here to do. The whole reason I came was to go to the cross. You're not letting God be God either. Everybody in this passage has a faulty, incomplete understanding of who God really is. The Roman soldiers... Um, can't possibly imagine that this man they're about to crucify could possibly be God. But but Peter and the disciples, they can't imagine that God could possibly allow himself to be crucified. They're all mistaken about Jesus. They're, they're mistaken in different ways, but they're all mistaken about God because they won't let God be God. And we do the same thing. We all reject God in different ways, but the basic reason is we don't want to let God be God. We Um, we, we want to have control over God, which means that we construct a God of our own imagining. And that leads to a question. And let me tee it up for you like this. We live in a culture that is not just sensitive to issues of morality, but hypersensitive. In other words, we live in a culture of moral outrage. Do we not? So that at even the slightest act of injustice, what happens? out come the swords. Um, Because our culture is very rightfully, we have this instinct that wrongdoing demands justice. We know that instinctively. Now, how could we possibly expect that God would care less about justice than we do? So, if we're refusing to let God be God, if we're rejecting God, in other words, we're the ones that are really out there, you know, after God with clubs and, and And weapons. If if we're the ones who are refusing to let God be God, who are coming after God, don't you realize what that is? You know, in our culture, think about this. One of the worst acts of injustice and oppression is to refuse to honor and recognize the identity of someone else. Isn't that right? Few things in our culture arouse more wrath than that. It is one of the most profound acts of injustice and oppression in our culture don't you realize that's exactly what we do to god and if that's the case then here's the question what should god do about this do we expect god to care less about justice than we do if if we do that to god what does justice look like in this case what should it look like that leads to our last point we've seen how we reject god that we all reject him in different ways but we all do it we've seen that why we reject god that We don't want to let God be God, but that leads to our last point. What does God actually do about this? And notice I asked the question, what does God do about it? That's a different question than asking, what should God do about it? But let's start with that question, okay? What should God do about this? We see the answer to that question at the very end of this passage. Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, what's this cup Jesus is talking about? If you read through the whole Bible, you'll find out that the cup is a very common image for God's justice on all of the injustice of this world. The cup is the cup of God's wrath. That's what the cup is. Um, Drinking the cup is like drinking the furnace of God's wrath, basically. Whenever I think about this, I always think about um, Harry Potter and Dumbledore when they went in the sixth book to the cave to go find that first horcrux, the locket, they go to, um, to, to go look for this locket, and uh, it's submerged in a magical stone basin that's filled with water, and the only way they can get that, that locket out of there is for Dumbledore to drink all of the water. But, but it's like drinking fire. He's in agony drinking it. He's staggering. He's tearing his breast. And Harry he keeps filling the cup, giving it to Dumbledore, and Dumbledore keeps drinking this cup. He's in such tremendous agony that eventually he cries out, Kill me, kill me, because he would rather die than continue enduring the torment of drinking from this cup. That is just a dim echo of the cup of God's wrath. Friends, we deserve to drink this cup of God's justice, because of our character assassination attempts on God. And if you don't believe that you deserve to drink this cup too, then the cross of Jesus Christ can never change your life. It can never really benefit you, can never really transform your life, because God ought to give us the cup to drink, but that's not what he does. What does he do? Jesus tells Peter, Peter, I came to drink the cup, so that you won't have to. I came to bear the judgment you deserve so that you could receive the love and the blessing that I deserve because Jesus Christ is showing us here. He is not just an example of love to us. He is our substitute of love for us. I once heard a story about a seminary professor who tells a story to help explain the difference between those two things. He says, imagine that you were standing next to a bonfire with a friend of yours, and your friend turns to you and says, I want to show you how much I love you, and they run and they jump into the fire. Would you say, behold how he loved me? No, you would say, that friend of mine was crazy. Crazy. But what if that friend, instead of that, what if your house was on fire and your child was in the house and your friend runs into the house, saves your child, but dies in the attempt, then you would say, behold, how he loved me. Friends, the more you know your own heart, the more you understand the the depths of your own rejection of God, the more you... um, understand that that we all deserve to drink that cup, then the more your life can actually be transformed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ drained the the cup to the dregs for us. All of the ruin and the terror, the horror and the desolation, the, the fire and the agony of all God's justice, it smote Jesus on the cross so that all the the love and the acceptance, the smile and the blessing and and the light and the beauty of God's face could shine on us. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And if you don't see that you need a substitute, then the cross of Jesus Christ can never really change your life. It can never do that for you. But notice what Jesus tells the soldiers. He says, take me and let them go. How much more clearly could Jesus be showing us, look, I am not just an example to you, I am a substitute for you. Because the cross of Jesus Christ was the ultimate place where Jesus said, not just as human soldiers, but to the God of the universe, take me and let them go. The more you see what Jesus has really done for you on the cross, that he is your substitute there, that he drank the cup for you, the more you see that, the more that transforms your life So if you're here this morning and you're exploring faith in Jesus and what that might mean for your life, then here's how I would invite you to um, apply this to your life this morning. I would invite you to just ask yourself one question, and the question is this, am I living on borrowed light? Am I walking in borrowed light? In other words, do you believe in things like individual human rights or the dignity of every human individual? or our moral obligation to care for the poor, the weak, the oppressed, and the marginalized. If you do believe in those things, then I would invite you to consider what worldview, what view of the world actually makes best sense of that moral light that you're walking in. Can atheism make sense of it, which says that human beings are cosmic accidents? Or can Eastern religions make best sense of it, which say that our experience of being unique individuals is really just an illusion? Or does Christianity make best sense of it, which says that the God of the universe created every individual human being in his image and then put so much worth and value on every individual human being that he became a human being himself in order to come here and save us? Friends, if if you believe in things like human rights, and caring for the poor and the oppressed, if that's the moral light you're walking in, then what do you do when you realize that your worldview doesn't actually justify the light you're walking in? At that point, you really only have two options that have any integrity. One of them is let go of that moral light. Get rid of it. It doesn't make any sense. That's what Nietzsche would urge you to do. The other option is, well, why not change your worldview to the one worldview that really does give you the resources for that moral light you're walking in? That's what Jesus would urge you to do. Now, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, how does this apply to you? Let me um, offer you a question, a different question to ask yourself. And the question is this, who am I standing with? In other words, if you take a look at this passage, um, You notice when Jesus says, I am, there's a little side note right after that. It says, Judas was standing with them, that is, with the mob. and It almost sounds superfluous. Why would it mention that? Judas was standing with them. Well, of course, he was there. He was standing with somebody. Why would it say that? The reason is because it's making a point of showing us that you're going to stand with somebody. In other words, you are either going to align yourself with Jesus or you are going to align yourself against Jesus. And notice Peter does the same thing in this passage. He's aligning himself. When he picks up his sword to whack off the ear of Malchus, uh, Peter is aligning himself against Jesus because he's refusing to accept that the cross is God's way of bringing healing into this world. At that moment, Peter is trusting more in political and military power than he's trusting in Jesus. Now, here's what this means for us. If you're a Christian... It's really easy for us to get co-opted by all kinds of rival gods. So when the fear and the anxiety hit, and all control is driven by fear and anxiety. When the fear and the anxiety hit, when the world isn't going the way you want, when your life isn't going the way you want it to go, it's really natural, it's only too easy for us to want to look to something else in order to get control over the situation. So, it might be different things. It might be politics, and not just one party, but the whole spectrum. Or it might be materialism, or a desire for prosperity. Um, Or it might be sexual freedom or sexual encounters. It might be cutting ethical corners. Something to help us get control over our lives in a world that feels out of control. But whatever it is, if we do that, then what we're really doing, even if we say, well, I'm only relying on that thing just a little bit, what we're really doing is we're aligning ourselves with that thing and against Jesus, because what we're saying is Jesus isn't enough. And when we do that, if we do that, that's doing two things. First, that makes the anxiety in our hearts worse, because none of those things really has the power to give us the control we're seeking. And secondly, that compromises our witness to the sufficiency of Jesus for all things in this world, because the world looks at the church, and especially contemporary American evangelicalism, and it rightly sees that the church is very compromised in all kinds of ways. The world looks at us, and it can see just how compromised we really are. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning to let this God be your God. Let Jesus be your crucified and risen Savior. Look at the power that he gives you in those two words, I am. When Jesus says, I am, it was enough to knock the Roman soldiers flat on their backs. You know, the world, this world that we live in is going to bring all kinds of pressure against you and upon you to to keep your faith in Jesus private. Just keep it to yourself. It's a private thing. If it works for you, great, but don't bring it into public. All kinds of pressure to do that. So how are you going to actually stand with Jesus when the world is bringing all kinds of pressure on you? The world desperately needs Christians who are both willing and able to make the meaning of those two words, I am, to make the meaning of those words both clear and compelling to a dark world that is desperately in need of light. And and the way we do that is by allowing Jesus to bring the power of those two words into our life, to be the great I am that he says he is, to let him be that for you and to you in your life. And and, and we do that by letting him change the way we live, by not putting our ultimate trust in things like politics or success or money or sex or power. We also do it through the words that we speak, And I know that raises fears, you know, evangelization and all that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be out on a street corner yelling at people. It certainly doesn't mean that we should be, you know, incinerating other people on social media or in our conversations with them. If, you know, if people walk away from a conversation with you um, feeling like Malchus, you know, kind of bleeding and their ears are falling off, (laughs) put your sword back in its sheath. That is not the way of Jesus. Jesus gives us the blueprint for what he wants our lives to look like in this world. That blueprint is the cross. The cross is the ultimate blueprint for for how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to think and feel and do and say. The cross should shape everything about our lives, not taking up the sword, but laying down the sword. And Jesus gives us the power to stand with him. Those two little words, I am. Friends, how are you going to stand with Jesus? How are you going to stand with Jesus when all the pressures and the anxieties of the world are constantly pulling you to stand with something else? Where are you going to get that power? Friends, listen, if if Jesus' great I am was powerful enough to knock the greatest powers of the world on their back, then when all the powers of the world come against you, Don't you think that the great I am is enough to have your back? He stood with you on the cross so that you can trust him and stand with him so that you can let your life be, let him make your life a vessel of his light, his love, and his life in the midst of a dark world. Let's pray.